people. If you guys want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, we'll be in Acts chapter 20 today. We'll pick up around verse 17. Um, I thought I would just do my usual little recap here of what we looked at last week. Um, last week we, we started in Acts chapter 19. We're there. The Apostle Paul is still on his, he's really in the middle of his third missionary journey um, about Acts chapter 19 where we looked at last week this, this extended stay that the Apostle Paul made in the city of Ephesus. Um, we saw that Paul was in Ephesus for three years, really the, by far the longest the Apostle Paul stayed in any city. Paul was with the Ephesians. And there, while he was there for three years, as you can imagine, uh, the Apostle Paul made much progress with the gospel in that city, so much in fact that if you look at chapter 19 verse 10, it was able to be said of this, uh, of Paul, um, even at the two-year mark, it said this took place for two years, this was speaking of Paul's teaching in the city, this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So that's how much progress the Apostle Paul made in Asia that everyone in Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's how profitable Paul's teaching and, and his ministry was there in and around Asia. Um, last week we actually moved into chapter 20, where we saw Paul actually eventually, although he was there for three years, he eventually got drove out of Ephesus, and uh, he headed out from there up through Asia. He went down through Macedonia, and so as he went back through Macedonia, he'd already been there before, Paul's back in Macedonia, he's, he's strengthening the churches, he's encouraging all the churches that he had already planted on his second missionary journey. So he's basically revisiting these churches that he and Barnabas had planted. And uh, Paul went all the way through Asia, all the way through Macedonia. In chapter 20, he came all the way down to Greece, where once he got to Greece again, he was going to set sail from Greece and head to Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul wanted to, to set sail. He wanted to get back to Jerusalem in time for the Passover. But unfortunately, as we saw last time, what happened was before he could get on the boat to sail back to Jerusalem, there was actually a plot made to kill him. And so the Apostle Paul did not board that ship. Instead, he headed back up through Macedonia once again and to see all of the churches that he had just visited. Um, we know that as he's visiting all these churches in Macedonia and in Asia, he's actually at the same time collecting this financial gift that he's going to bring to the churches in Jerusalem and in Judea. So Paul continues that, uh, gathering the financial collection and, and ministering to all these churches. So because there was that plot in his life, he wasn't able to sail back to Jerusalem. He ends up going all the way back through Macedonia, through Asia. He comes all the way back down right near Ephesus, um, but what Paul does not do is he does not come back and stop in Ephesus again. Instead, he, he stops at a very nearby city called Miletus. Miletus is a, a port city. It's right on the coast. And uh, instead of going to um, Ephesus where Paul had spent all that time in which there was this church that he loved so much, instead he stopped in, in the city of Miletus. And the reason he did that is, is chapter... Uh, Chapter 20, verse 16, told us that he was in such a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He didn't want to come back to Ephesus. He knew it would delay him. He, would, he was trying now to make it back there by Pentecost. So he didn't want to stop in Ephesus. He did the next best thing. He stopped in, the, in a close city uh, called Miletus. 
And let's pick up there in chapter 20, verse 17, where it says this. It says, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus, and he called to him the elders of the church. Okay, so Paul stopped in Miletus, and from there he called to Ephesus, and he called the elders to come to him. Now we know, because Paul was there with the, in, in Ephesus for three years, that he loved this church. He had a di very deep relationship with the Christians there. Uh, but because he couldn't actually show up at the church, he knew it would delay him. Instead, he called and had the elders of that church come to him. And so uh, the first thing I want to note here in verse 17 is really an ecclesiological point. And when I say ecclesiological point, um, what is... What is ecclesiology? What do I mean when, it, when I say that? I know you've probably heard the word ecclesiology in Pastor Emilio's sermons, um, but I want to kind of stop on some of these terms and, and remind you of the meaning so that when you hear it, you understand what, what's being said. So if, I, if I'm going to make an ecclesiological point from this verse, what, what kind of point am I going to make? How what, the church governs. How the church governs. Yeah. Uh, ecclesiology is the study of the church. Right? So that word ecclesiology comes from the word ekklesia, which is the, the, the Greek term for church or gathering. Okay? So, yeah, that's right. I want to make a point here about um, how the church is governed. And what do we see there in verse 15 is that Paul, call, uh, yeah, Paul calls the elders, plural, of the church, singular. You know, that, it's a significant point because um, in the New Testament, the, the churches always have a plurality of elders. I mean, I, it's significant to me because I know I was raised never with that model. I was raised in churches, you know, where there's always just the one guy, you have the, the pastor, maybe some, maybe some deacons, probably a plurality of deacons. But, um, but this is how Paul structured the New Testament churches. He, all, he, he basically handed over his apostolic leadership, his, his governing of the churches, he handed it over to a group of godly men, not just one man, you know. Um, it was actually a group of men that he gave this title elder to in this position. Um, we never see in the New Testament a single pastor model. We just never see it. Um, if you flip back to Acts chapter 14, just keep your finger there, and flip back to Acts chapter 14, verse 23, I think, it, I think it's significant to note here is that in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, this is the very beginning of, of Paul and Barnabas' uh, uh, church-planting missionary trip, the very first missionary trip they did. And notice what they did in the very first trip from the, from the get-go. It says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. So from the very beginning, this has been the, the, uh, the model of the New Covenant, New Testament church, is that there's a plurality of elders in each church. So... Um, I don't know how many of you have even um, thought much about it, but what do you think are some of the, as you think of the wisdom in God, uh, of God and, and how he organized this church, what do you think are some of the, the benefits of having a plurality of eldership in a church? What are some things that maybe come to mind? Like, man, that's why God did that. What's so good about having more than one pastor in a church? You know, less potential for dictatorship. Yeah. And... Uh, we had just one pastor leading it. He could be potentially swayed even by money. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, 
you know, a lot of the times, you know, yeah, dictatorship, that passion of that one guy kind of has that CEO model, you know, in his mind of where he's just running the show. He's just, this is his church. He's doing it his way, and everybody's got to do what his way is. Yeah, you kind of, you kind of set yourself up um, for failure in that sense, possibly. Anything else? The council system, you have many counselors. Yeah. Wiser. So yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that that's yeah that's that's actually a very uh, pertinent reason of why I got to that. Yeah, plurality of, of wisdom there. You can bounce ideas off of each other. You can reason with each other. You can, you know, where, the, where there's a multitude of counselors. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I've seen that because when you have these singer, single model pastors, I mean, I've kind of made the point of. That's why I think a lot of their teaching is so, in these churches, a lot of the teaching gets watered down so much, is because you have one guy doing everything, you know, where if you have more than one elder, that some of the responsibilities can be uh, kind of handed down and distributed evenly. But if you have one guy teaching, you know, five or six different classes a week, I mean, you can't expect his teaching to be where you would want it, you know. So, yeah, that's, that's another reason that I think it's helpful to have a plurality of eldership. You know, so the, the, yeah, those, I think those are, are predominantly the things that I thought of. You know, if you're just one elder, that's why you see a lot of guys bailing out of ministry. You know, maybe why Joanne, that guy, bailed out of ministry. You know, maybe he was a single elder model trying to do everything himself. He just got burnt out, possibly. You know, um, so yeah, so Paul, Paul established a plurality of elders in the churches, and then that's what we always see. Um, so here. Here in Miletus, Paul called together this group of elders, um, the elders of this church that he loved so dearly, this church that he spent more time with than any other. And what we're seeing here in this section of Scripture in Acts chapter 20, um, verse 18, is that what we're seeing is really Paul's last words. You may have like a, a title in this section. Mine says in the NASB, Farewell to Ephesus. Some title it like Paul's last will and testimony. Um, but... The Apostle Paul thinks that um, he is never going to see this church again. Paul's on his death march, as far as he's concerned, to Jerusalem where he's going to die. And so that's what I think is so significant and important about this section, is that we're getting the Apostle Paul's last words. He thinks this is the last thing he's going to have to say to these elders. He's leaving the church of God in their care, and that's why this section is so important. That's why I want to, again, kind of stop, go through everything that this section says, I think after this, we'll be able to move much more quickly through Acts. A lot of it just becomes more narrative after this, not as, not as theological and doctrinal, but um, here I want to stop and see Paul's last words, what Paul considers to be the most important things you can tell a church. What are the most important things you can leave with the elders of a church? This is what Paul's going to say right here. Um, so let's, let's go ahead and dive in here. Acts chapter 20, verse 18 it says, and when they had come to him, when the elders came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. And so Paul here first just begins his, his talk, his speech, his, his sermon to these elders He's reminding them of the humble sincerity, of the genuineness with which he served the Lord before them. 
You know, Paul had a, a real genuine love for the people of God, for the church that he ministered to. Um, here he even mentions, to the point of tears. Paul uh, cared so much for the spiritual well-being of the church that as he ministered to them at time, it brought him to tears. That's the, that's the heart of the Apostle Paul. Um, this isn't the only place he even mentions that in scriptures, even in 2 Corinthians um, what was it? Chapter 2, verse 4, Paul mentions that he, he shed tears over the, the, the Corinthian church. In Philippians, Philippians 3.18, again, Paul, tears, tears with the church. You know, that, I mean, that's where the elder wants to be. You know, when you're dealing with these things that are of just eternal consequence, you're dealing with people's souls, heaven or hell, these types of issues, um, tears are a very fitting, very appropriate place to be. You know, as you're shepherding, it, there's nothing, nothing um, abnormal about that. It, it, it should be more normal, I think, um, in the things that we're dealing with. And that's where Paul was. Paul had a true concern for the churches. Um, Paul also, he says here, uh, he remained faithful to minister to these churches even through trials. You know, and these are not the trials um, that, that most uh, pastors or elders these days um, bail out of the ministry for. Like, I would have been interesting, interested, Joanne, to hear why that pastor, you know, ended up getting out, but we don't know. Um, but I guarantee you it wasn't because of the trials that the Apostle Paul was going through. People were trying to hunt him down and to kill him, and he still continued to minister to the church of God. So, I mean, Paul is really just just the, the quintessential example of, of, a, of, a, of a minister of the gospel, one who's willing to, to lay down his life for the church. Um, Paul was, was willing to die to fulfill his ministry to these churches. <laughs> People were trying to kill him, and he did not quit. You know, he was fulfilling his call. And, uh, and it's because Paul had just this real, genuine um, concern for the people's souls that he can say in verse 20. Uh, look at verse 20. Paul says that I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here I think Paul's just once again mentioning another characteristic of his example of what a godly and genuine minister of the gospel is. And that characteristic that he's mentioning here is, is the willingness to be bold enough to say what needs to be said to the people of God. You know, um, Pastor Emilio mentioned last week how really the concept of church discipline is almost like a lost, a lost cause in the churches these days in America. Church discipline just doesn't happen. And the reason I think it doesn't happen is, is pastors these days want people um, to like them more then they're concerned about the people actually becoming more godly. They're more concerned about like, if the people like them or whether the people are going to be sanctified. It, that's the problem. That's why they don't want to say what needs mm -hmm. to be said, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they're just, they're just more willing to see compromise in the church um, than, than for the people just to be happy. You know, and that's not, that's not what the Apostle Paul was. The Apostle Paul did not shrink back. He was bold enough to declare everything that they needed to hear. Everything. And, uh, you know, I just thought we need to prepare ourselves um, to be thankful anytime Pastor Emilio or I or even anyone um, comes to you with a correction, with an exhortation, with a rebuke, whatever it is. You should be thankful. 
you know, at first, of course, naturally, you're going to, you know, your pride is going to be hurt and you're going to, you know, beat the fist. Of course. You know what I mean? When Pastor Emilio corrects me and tries to help me in things that, um, at first, I'm always naturally the same. You know, of course. That's your natural reaction. Oh, you know, I don't know about that. But no, you know, I mean, you know he's doing it because he loves me, because he loves the church. He wants me to be better at administering to the church. That's the motivation. And so we need to prepare ourselves for that. Because like I said, it, as you read through the New Testament, it's not only pastors who are actually to be going and, and, and correcting the church. It's actually the responsibility of everyone. We should all actually be doing that. It shouldn't be abnormal uh, for that to happen. None of us are so sanctified that we don't still need <coughs> correction. I know we all wish we were at that point, but we're not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we need to prepare ourselves for that. Um, I, I actually thought of this kind of point on that matter. If you think about that famous passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, um, where, where Paul's saying what the Word of God is for. You know, Paul says Scripture is God-breathed, all of it. It's all God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching. You know, we all like that part. Oh, yeah, the Word of God, you know, bring it. It's for teaching. Paul also goes on to say it's for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's what the Word of God is for, you know. How often does it get used for those things, though, in the church? I think it, it most of the time is just used for teaching, not for reproof and correction. But that's what God has given us the Word of God for. That's part of its job, you know. And that's the Apostle Paul, faithful, faithful to do what needs to be done. He was bold. And, uh, and let's look here. In verse 21, let's, let's look at how Paul summarizes. It's one of the way he summarizes. At, at one point he summarizes teaching by saying, I preach Christ, I preach him. That summarizes teaching. Here he summarizes his teaching by saying this in verse 21. He says, I was solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a summary of Paul, what Paul's message was. Paul's, Paul's response to the gospel message was repentance and faith. <coughs> repentance and faith. You know, this, you know, it is a good way to describe this. Repentance and faith are just two sides of the same coin, and that coin being a genuine conversion. You know, you must have both. It's a turning from sin to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the core of Paul's message. You know, and as you share the gospel, anytime I share the gospel... Those are really the words, the biblical words, the biblical vocabulary that I want to have ringing in that person's ear. I want to leave them with the hope and and the knowledge of what they must do to be saved. I want them to know, like, man, you know, this guy said, I need to repent and trust in Christ to be saved. That's what you want to have them, you want to leave them with. You know, uh, what's so interesting also about this passage, the way Paul says it, is that this message was the message for everyone. It was a message for everyone, repentance and faith. That's Paul's message to everyone. Jews and Greeks, unsaved and saved, repentance and faith, even to the saved. You know, this, the message of repentance and faith is not only what saves the soul, it's also what sanctifies the soul. You know, so we need to continue to have repentance and faith preached to us, even as believers. Even as Paul ministered to the churches, it was still the same message, repentance and faith. Continue to turn from your sin. Continue to have more faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how your, your soul is sanctified. Um, notice here where Paul did this teaching. Because he tells us, he says, I did this. Um, I was teaching you publicly and from house to house. 
publicly and from house to house. So Paul didn't only teach. Uh, we've seen him teach in the marketplaces. We've seen him teach in that school of Tyrannus. You know, he didn't only teach publicly in that way. He also taught from house to house, which, you know, if we think of that now, I don't think it was too much different then. Um, but Paul was very up close and personal with the, the people of God, with the church, with the families. He was in the homes ministering to the people of God, which really, you know, in our home, this is really a very personal setting. You know, but the Apostle Paul was, was right there um, in the living rooms ministering to the people of God. You know, verse 22, Paul goes on. He says, And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Bonds and afflictions. The Spirit says to him in every city that this is going to happen. Bonds and afflictions. As we said, the Apostle Paul still persevered, even knowing that, which is amazing. Um, but, but how did the, how did this, I, I kind of wondered this, how did the Spirit relate this message, this clear of a message to the Apostle Paul? How did he know this for sure, that um, bonds and afflictions await him? Well, we've seen a few examples of how he knew this. Actually, God used these prophets. He used men to relay this message to the Apostle Paul. A couple examples here. We saw in Acts chapter 9, when uh, Ananias, that man who uh, God called to, to, to baptize um, the Apostle Paul, um, he told him to basically relay that message to tell the Apostle Paul how much he must suffer for my namesake. You know, that was Paul's gospel call. Come suffer for me. You know, um, and look over in Acts chapter 21, verse 10 and 11. <coughs> this is another way that, that God, through the Spirit, through a prophet, relayed this message to the Apostle Paul. Um, verse 10, 21 verse 10, it says, As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so there, God reveals through this spirit a very vivid description, actual, just like the Old Testament prophets in a sense, you know, they would act out some of these prophetic messages. Um, here, uh, this man Agabus uh, predicts through the spirit that Paul would indeed suffer, be bound when he gets to Jerusalem. Um, just look up at Acts 21, verse 4, another example. Here are all the disciples in the church. It says, after looking at the disciples... Uh, we stayed there seven days, and they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. There, the, the, the whole church, the Spirit has uh, put it into the, into the heart of the church to warn Paul, Paul, when you go to Jerusalem, suffering, suffering is awaiting for you. And, uh, you know, that, I think that is the amazing thing about the Apostle Paul, is that despite the guarantee that suffering was going to come for him, uh, he continued faithful in his ministry. Paul, the Apostle Paul never backed out of his ministry. He remained faithful knowing that, that suffering was coming. Um, how did he do that? How, how did the Apostle Paul uh, maintain that type of faithfulness uh, with the threat of, in, in, the, in the ensuing uh, surety of death? 
Look at verse 24. Back in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. It, re- it reveals to us Paul's mindset, Paul's motivation, Paul's thinking. How could somebody continue the gospel ministry knowing death is coming? Mm-hmm. The Apostle Paul tells us, verse 24, Paul said, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the, of the gospel of the grace of God. So this is how the Apostle Paul was able to finish his course, finish his ministry. It's because he didn't count his life as anything. The Apostle Paul did not count his life as dear to himself. You know, since there's no, um, as Pastor Miller said last week, there's no keys to the Christian faith, there's no secrets, um, I'll say it like this. Having this attitude and this mindset of, of, of your life not being dear to yourself, this is essential. This is essential if you want to actually have a productive Christian life. You must count your life as nothing. You must be willing to lay down your life. And so I just thought, you know, we really need to try to be honest with ourselves before God to see what are the things, we all have things that we're still holding on to. You know what I mean? None of us have perfectly repented. None of us have perfect faith. You know what I mean? None of us have perfectly taken up our cross like we should. What are the things that are keeping us from gospel ministry or, or, or whatever our call in life is, what's still holding us back? You know, I don't think you'd have to think too long to know what most of those things are. Hopefully the Spirit has convicted you of these things, you know, throughout your life. But um, it's to be conscious of these things, you know, and to work at, at letting them go so that you can be more productive. You know, because productivity in the Christian life is, is through the word that nobody likes, but it's sacrifice. Sacrifice. Who's going to be willing to sacrifice the things you want to do so that, so that you can do things for God? Sacrifice. It's a, it's a tough word. But that's exactly what the Apostle Paul was um, for these churches. I think, you know, we have the gospel call, like Jesus said. Um, you must lose your life for his sake. I mean, that's just a very basic gospel. That's part of being a Christian is being willing to let your life go. So we hear Jesus' command. We know we're trying to do it. We, we know we need to. Uh, but these churches actually had this grace, this additional grace of having someone in their midst who they could see do that. that that's a benefit of having godly people that you can look to who, who are actually doing these things, these hard things, these, these huge sacrifices of, uh, of laying down their lives. And so these churches had that. They had Paul in their midst for three years um, being an example of the grace of God right before them, of seeing someone who was, who was willing to be completely sold out for Jesus Christ. And I know just being in his presence, seeing the Apostle Paul lay down his life in that way was beneficial to them. It would have built up their faith. It would have, it would have given them hope to do the same thing. Um, but let's pick up at verse 26 now. There the Apostle Paul says, Therefore... I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Now this is, this is what Paul is able to say after a lifetime of, of godly ministry and a lifetime of sacrifice. And this is what you want to be, be able to say on your deathbed. This is what you want to be able to say at the end of whatever your call by God was, whatever your ministry is, um, this is what you want to be able to say, that I was in, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. 
whatever people, whatever souls you had under your influence, whether you're a minister in a church, whether you have a family, uh, whatever, whatever scope of influence you have over other souls, you want to be able to say this on that day. You want to be able to say, I, I'm innocent of all, all the blood of, of all the men. Um, if anybody's going to continue in sin, if anybody's continuing rebellion to God, if anybody's going to go to hell, it's going to be as, as Spurgeon said, you know, if anybody's going to go to hell, it's going to be with me wrapped around their legs trying to keep them from going. You know, that's, that's the clear conscience you want to have on that day, mm-hmm. that you've done everything you could to, to warn. Really, that's what, that's what the language is here. It's like a, every, everybody goes back to Ezekiel, this, mm-hmm. this, this prophetic utterance of this, uh, the watchman mm-hmm. from Ezekiel, you know. It, he stood up on the, on, the, uh, on the wall and kept watch, and if the enemy was to come, he was to blow the trumpet. And if he did, if he warned the city and they didn't get ready to fight, the enemy, the blood was on him. He would be held accountable. But... If, if, like us, if we warn, um, if we warn those under us in our influence, um, we're, we're clean, you know, we're clean of their blood. It's, it's on them. You know, and that's where you want to be um, at that point where you can, you can say you're innocent of everyone's blood. You said the hard things. That's usually what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. You, said the, you said the necessary things to those you love, to those things you care about. Um, you pointed them and, and called them to repentance. I mean, it, it's hard to do. But then again, Paul, Paul laid down this example for these elders. These elders were indeed blessed to have the Apostle Paul for three years, um, showing them a godly ministry. Again, Paul here repeats in verse 20 the fact that he did not shrink back from declaring the whole purpose of God. You know, Paul didn't just preach the easy parts of Scripture. He preached the hard parts of Scripture. You know, he, he called people to a real sanctification and holiness, even the hard parts. Um, you know, I, I just try to, in putting my, myself in the, in the place of these elders as they're hearing the Apostle Paul um, teach them, you know, I, I'm sure they were getting fired up. You know, they're ready to get back to Ephesus. They're ready to get back to the churches, get their church in order, tell everybody what they need to do. You know, that's what they would have been wanting to do. But look what the Paul, Apostle Paul said, whoa, 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 slow down now. Verse 28, hmm. because before you can go minister to others, Paul tells them, verse 28, be on guard for yourselves. He's telling this to the elders of the church. You elders, be on guard for yourselves. You know, even the elders cannot um, forget to keep an eye on themselves in their own ministry, in their own walk, really, is what it's talking to, talking about. Um, I think an elder who's only concerned, and I think this could be a, t- a tendency, you know, as an elder, as an overseer, your tendency could be to just be worried about the others, and you forget to, to, to watch yourself. You know, you're putting yourself in great danger of pride, first of all. Like you could be putting up these blinders to your own walk and sanctification. That's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, so Paul warns them, watch yourselves. Be on guard for yourselves. Um, you know, there, there's, there's really no greater blight on, on the gospel and on Christ than when a, an elder or any minister or any leader in the church falls into sin. You know, it's, just, it's, it's, it's really horrible. Because it also causes so many others to stumble. It causes so many to lose faith. You know what I mean? It just seems like, well, that's all fake anyways. And, you know, if a pastor can't even maintain a walk, you know, that's not real. It's just an excuse that people can grab onto, you know. Um, so Paul is very wise here to, to remind the, the pastors themselves to watch themselves, watch their walk. Um, you can't lead others without first leading yourself. Um, but let's look at the whole verse 
verse 28 here because this, this is a huge verse. It's huge. Paul says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Okay, there's a, there's a ton right here in this verse. It's first, first thing, Paul's here acknowledging this holy call that it is to be an elder, to be an overseer, as he calls it here. Um, it's, it's a holy calling because it's the Holy Spirit who calls someone to this, to this task. You know, it's the Holy Spirit who gives somebody the graces, the abilities to be an elder. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to, to do that. Um, and, there, and there are requirements that, that meant where are the requirements in the Bible so that you can know if the Holy Spirit has in fact called somebody to be an elder? Where can we find that in the Bible? If we want to know whether somebody, uh, if the Spirit is indeed willing for someone to be an elder, where would we go in the Bible to find out whether that's true or not? Pastoral epistles, I mean Timothy. Yeah, pastoral epistles, Timothy. What's the, what's the other book that is a pastoral epistle that, that the qualifications are found in? Yeah, Jason got the first. First Timothy 3 and Titus, right? Those are the two books you go in. They're called the pastoral epistles, um, that section that Paul writes there. Um, so, yeah, so there actually is an objective set of standards there um, that, that we can look at. And in the first Timothy 3, there's also a, uh, qualifications for the deacons as well. You know, these are the two, the two offices of the church, and, and God gives us um, objective things to look at there for that, um, to know whether the Spirit is calling somebody to that task or not. Um, the other thing that I think is significant in this verse right here, verse 28, is, is notice the words that Paul uses to describe the elder. You know, he's gathered together the elders of the church. Paul here in verse 28 also calls them overseers. He calls them overseers. He uses a different word. It's episkopos is the word he uses here. Um, and this word is just used interchangeably, elder, overseer, in the New Testament. It's speaking of the same office here. Um, and I think the word overseer, you can just kind of, even just in the word, you can see that the word's used because it describes an aspect of the job of the elder to oversee. You're an overseer of the church. That, that's part of the job of, of being an elder, is you're an overseer. He also uses another word there. Uh, notice the word, which is the word to shepherd. It's the, he uses the verb form here, to shepherd, uh, paimano, but it, it comes from poimain, which is just the word shepherd or pastor. Pastor becomes a pretty common word the way we call it, but it's the same word. So right here in this section, we have all three designations that the New Testament uses for the elder. Elder, overseer, shepherd, or pastor. It's, 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 they're all right here describing the office of the elder. So then again, in the word shepherd, you hear another description of what the pastor's job is to do. He's to shepherd the flock. He's to, he's to give them direction. He's to keep them moving towards Christ. He's to keep them moving towards Christ. That's the job of the shepherd. And then again, they're always plural in the New Testament churches like we talked about already. Um, lastly, in verse 28, look at this. What do you all think about this statement of Paul here? Paul tells them to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, what, what jumps out to you when, when at that statement there of the Apostle Paul? Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Anything 
jump out at you there of significance? Towards uh, the view of the Trinity. Yeah. The Trinity? Yeah, that, that God and Christ. Talking about Jesus. Or, or yeah. Yeah, I think so. That I think I mean, it explicitly points to the deity of the Son, the deity of Christ. I mean, it uses the word to reference God having blood. How in the world could God have blood? Or how does God have blood? Well, God the Son has blood. The Son of God took on flesh, became a man. And so, yeah, it seems, I think it's a very explicit reference to the deity of Christ here. You know, that he's called God. That's, that's all it could be talking about. That's the only reference it could be. Um, is that as to the, the deity of Christ. Also, I think it's, it's significant to us, and to, to anyone really, who specifically did God the Son purchase with his blood? Who specifically did Jesus die for? Yeah, that's what it says. Yeah, he purchased the church. That's what the transaction was. That's who he died for. That's who he atoned for. Just like Ephesians 5.25 says. You know, Christ laid down his life for the church. John 10, 11, Jesus died for the sheep. Romans, I mean, Revelation chapter 5 says uh, he purchased for men for God out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, men out of every... I think that's, in that sense, that's how Jesus died for the world. The universal church in the entire world. No longer, like in the Old Testament, was atonement just for Jerusalem. Now it's for the whole world. Now there's people being saved from the entire world, not just the Jews anymore. You know, as I thought about this, as, as the church is who Jesus died for, and, and just thinking about how Paul's speaking directly to elders, you know, this is the, for, for, for everyone, really, this is you, this should be your view, this should be your, um, this is, should be how you view the church, as those people for whom the Son of God actually came and died for. You know, that's how you should, should view each other, that's how you should treat each other, as those whom God loves. And if God loves them enough to come and die for them, you, you better love them. You better love them with everything you have. Right. I mean, you know. So, yeah, that's, that's Paul's view of the church. Is that these are, this is Christ's bride. Just like you don't go mess with any other man's bride, you, you sure don't want to mess with Jesus' bride. You know. Um, that, that, should, that should be a, that's a very healthy view of, of just constantly recognize, keeping in your mind who the church is. You know, we're, we're Jesus' bride. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so what Paul's doing here, he's exhorting, he's pleading with the elders of this church to watch over themselves, to watch over the church which God purchased. And, and here, he's, here he's warning them, exhorting for a very specific reason. Notice verse 29, uh, one of the reasons that he's having to exhort them and warn them and remind them of these things. Verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert. Um, the fact that false teachers, um, Paul says that I know this is going to happen. I know that after my, after my departure, false teachers will rise up in your midst. Um, I think that's a, a terrifying thought of false teachers, because the false teachers he's talking about aren't just people, you know, with a different eschatology or something like that. Um, he's talking about heretical people that are going to lead some of the, 
some of the flock to hell. That's the seriousness of, of this warning that false teachers are going to rise up in the church. And in verse 30, he says, even from your own selves, even from some of those that he's probably speaking to right there, are going to turn to a, a, a heretical teaching and are going to lead astray the church of God. You know, I think, you know, just even as an elder, when you hear this section of Scripture and Paul saying that to elders, you just think like, you put yourself in the mindset of those disciples that were sitting around Jesus and the Lord's Supper, you know, is it I, Lord? Mm-hmm. Who's going to betray you? Those are terrifying words, you know. Um, and that, and that's, why, that's why Paul speaks them. Um, it's part of the means that God uses to, to frighten them, to stay, stay orthodox. Um, I like how Paul includes here. You got something in there? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, like how um, I understand so the warning is obviously to, to be aware, you know, that these men are going, you know, they're going to arise, he says, even from among your own selves, mm-hmm. you know. So seemingly even pastors from these churches who are rising up within the churches and teaching a different doctrine, mm-hmm. ultimately. Yeah. So I thought, you know, what could be a way that we could guard against that, you know, from you know, Chris Matthews or Emilio, you know, one day just going off into a different gospel. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, I haven't. It happens. Well, even historically, like the Apostles' Creed, you know, uh, just the creeds that were developed mm-hmm. were forced, sort of, because of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To kind of lay out orthodoxy, you know what I mean? Like, these are our views on these things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I even think just what we talked about already, having that, that plurality of eldership, you know what I mean? Where you can check each other, you know? Somebody starts getting off, wacky, you know what I mean? The, the, the other elders are there to, to warn them and to, to bring them back, you know? Plus, I think, man, I think we are in a blessed place in church history. Not that heresy doesn't happen, because it most certainly does continue to come up, but, I mean, we've seen so many heresies. So many heresies over church history have been worked out for us, you know, the ins and outs of all the heretical views have, have happened. We've had them all, you know, worked out for us to where, you know, it, it feels safer at this point in history, you know what I mean, that have so many doctrines have been worked out through the church. You know what I mean? We, we know what, what is orthodox and what is not. You know what I mean? We know what the gospel is and what is not. So that's comforting to me, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're in a better place than I think these these churches were. We have the the New Testament canon. We have the, the scriptures. You know, I mean, we have some of these very early heresies worked out, which they didn't have the scriptures. You know, once Paul left, they got to remember what Paul said. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but we have the we have the scriptures, and um, to keep us safe. Um, what else here as we run out of time? Um, let me jump forward here. Maybe we can pick up, um, let's pick up in verse 17. Actually, go to chapter 21, verse 17. Let's get right to Paul finally getting to Jerusalem, because that's where he's been trying to go forever. Um, he's had plots in his life that have distracted him. He's, he's made stops in places like Ephesus to, to encourage the church. Let's see what happens when Paul actually gets to his destination. This is where he's been wanting to go, Acts chapter 21, verse 17. It says, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And on the following day, 
Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. This is just a very uh, similar scene to how it is usually when Paul shows up to Jerusalem. He just relates all the things that, that he's been seeing God do and all the salvation that's been happening through, through the gospel message. Um, and, and James, you all know who James is. He's the brother of the Lord who's now an elder in this church. Notice Peter's not mentioned, nor John. It seems to be like either they're, they're out ministering elsewhere. But James is there in the elders, and they're encouraged. They're encouraged by Paul's labors. They're encouraged by uh, the gospel uh, ministry that's been happening and God's blessings of Paul's ministry. But, as we're going to see here, um, the elders and James, they do have a concern um, about how Paul's going to be received in Jerusalem by the Jews. Just look at what, what happens here in verses 20 and 21. It says, And when they heard it, um, they, been they, be they began glorifying God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. And they, were all, they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. Okay, so this is a very interesting situation here that the Apostle Paul finds himself in. Um, he's, he's, he's now back in Jerusalem. Paul knows Jerusalem. He's back in Jerusalem where the most zealous of old covenant law keepers reside. This is Jerusalem. Um, these people are zealous for the law. Not, not only the unsaved Jews, not only just, just old covenant Jews who aren't believing, also the believing Jews. They're zealous for the law. And what, what James and the elders here are worried about is that these Jews are not going to accept Paul. They're not going to accept Paul. And so what James and the, and the elders ask Paul to do, they go on to ask him to take part in a Nazarite vow with these four other Jewish believers. And uh, in this way, he'll, 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 he'll give proof to the Jews in Jerusalem that he's not anti-Moses, you know, that he's not anti-law. Um, and, and what is Paul going to do? Um, being true to his own theology, to his own teaching. You know, just let me read a section to you from 1 Corinthians 9.20. You probably know this. Paul said there, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. Mm -hmm. To those who were under the law, as under the law, though not myself being under the law, so that I might win those who were under the law. So the Apostle Paul was willing to take the advice of James and the elders to go ahead and partake in this vow, this Nazarite vow, and, uh, and just in a, an attempt really to pacify the Jews and, and to show them that he, he's not anti-Moses, he's not trying to stumble them, you know, he's keeping that open door. Um, and it's, it's just interesting because the Apostle Paul, we know, was the Apostle to the Gentiles. And as we've been seeing through the, through the book of Acts, Paul's, one of Paul's main points in his teaching is that the Gentiles do not have to become Jews. They do not have to come under all the Mosaic laws and, and stipulations and regulations to become saved. That's been one of the main messages. Even, the, even the, um, the elders there in Jerusalem agreed with that in Acts 15 at the council. They were all in agree with, agreement with that. 
Um, but what we never saw Paul saying as he went to all these cities amongst the Gentiles, when he went into the synagogues, we never saw Paul making these definitive statements that every Jew in the synagogue needed to immediately abandon all of these old covenant practices and ways. You know, we just never Paul, saw Paul saying that. Um, as, long, as long as the Jews, the Jewish believers in Christ, as long as they had a correct view of justification by faith alone and these sorts of things, he never made these blanket statements of everyone just abandoning everything that they had done um, their entire lives. I mean, the, the, the Apostle Paul most assuredly um, explained to them the significance of all these things and how they were all pointing to Christ and fulfilling Christ, um, but we didn't see him just commanding this abandonment of them immediately. Or the, I don't think the Apostle Paul would have himself taken a Nazarite vow if, if that's where he was at. Um, so what I, I really chalk all this up to the fact that um, a lot of these old covenant practices, these things that um, the Jews had done their whole lives had become a part of their consciences, of, of their worship to God, and they were still bound, I think, to, to doing these things as part of their uh, communion with God, even though they knew the significance of them as believers, that they were all fulfilled in Christ. Um, I think that's why we see teachings such as Romans chapter 14. I think in Romans chapter 14, Paul acknowledges the reality that many Jews were still bound in their conscience to you know, food regulations, the keeping of days, these sort of things. You know, Paul says some have liberties now that they realize these things were types and shadows to not do them, but some in their conscience were still bound and that they should keep doing them if their conscience were bound. So that's kind of the, you know, we've been talking about this transitional period in, in history going from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. I, I kind of tie all that in together. That's where the Apostle Paul was at here. These Jews, you know, who had, that had been their life, that had been their relationship in, re, in relation with God through some of these things, you know, they, they didn't want to stop them. And Paul didn't force them to stop them. You know, I think his teaching was that they're not necessary, of course, um, but because of their consciences and, and the way they viewed them and the way they were used to doing them, he, he continued, and he continued to allow them to do it. Um, any questions or comments? Do you have anything well, to add to that? I was just thinking about um, the doctrine of justification, you know, and how it relates to what you're talking about, that Paul at times uh, took advantage of his Jewishness. I think that when he picked up Timothy in Acts 16, had it circumcised. Some commentaries actually suggest that he erred. Right. You know, obviously, we disagree with that. It's exactly the principle you, you were giving us in 1 Corinthians 9, that you know, to mm -hmm. the Jew, he became a Jew. So he's able to do those things, but what's important to always remember is, as you know, the book of Galatians teaches us, that if you're trying to do these things for the sake of justification, to be justified or accepted in the sight of God, mm -hmm. you know, it's weird because in Acts 16, you know, Paul circumcises Timothy or has him circumcised. Mm -hmm. In Galatians, he says, if you receive circumcision, you fall into grace. Right. So we have to decipher, you know, so how did Paul not fall from grace? Right. You know what I mean? Well, obviously it's because he was not seeking, he was not trying to be justified in that act or as the Judaizers in Galatians were. Yep. It's all about your motivation for doing them. Yeah. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing this whole kind of thing? Is that how you think your sins are going to be forgiven and God's going to be pleased with you? Or are you trusting in the work of Christ? You know, if you're trusting in the work of Christ, okay, you know, these old types and shadows, you could continue, as long as you appreciated them for what they were, as types and shadows. Um, yeah, Paul allowed it. Paul allowed it. It was okay. 
Um, yeah, we are out of time. Um, so what, what's kind of ironic, I think, about this whole situation here where Paul goes out of his way to take part in this Nazarite vow, even though he did all of this um, in an attempt, as I said, to kind of pacify the Jews, not to cause them to stumble, he goes into the temple to offer this vow, and as soon as he walks into the temple, as soon as he steps foot in the temple, a riot ensues, and the Jews, mm -hmm. you know, try to kill him. They start beating him to death. Um, what ends up happening is the Romans, who are overseeing the city of Jerusalem, they, they intervene, they rescue Paul from this beating, and uh, what happens is as Paul's in the custody of these Roman guards, he pleads with them to, to speak to the people. <laughs> Paul wants to speak to the Jews who are trying to kill him. He's going to give uh, what ends up uh, being entitled in Acts chapter 22, a defense, mm -hmm. Paul's defense before the Jews. And so we'll pick up there next time um, with Paul's words to the Jews who are trying to kill them, where he defends his theology, is what his teaching is, his preaching, and all of these things. So we'll, we'll pick up there next, next time. Um, but we've got to go. So let me just pray real quick, and we'll go. Well, Father... Father, I thank you for your scriptures, God. I thank you that you've written these things down for us. Father, that we have them, that are these things that are unchanging, your word that, that doesn't change, Father, that we can know your mind and how that your church should operate and how elders should operate and that we have the great example of the Apostle Paul uh, to look to as one who was fully sold out, um, whose life was... Um, accounted as nothing to him so that he could live for the one who purchased him and the one who bought him. Father, I pray that we would, as we see Paul and as we think about the fact that he was a real, real, real man just as we are, uh, that we would be encouraged to do the same as him and to lay down our lives for your namesake. Father, I pray that the preaching today would encourage us to do just that. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for setting up your church, that we have a place where we can come and, and all hear your scriptures together, that we can be unified in mind and in thought as we hear your scriptures. Bless Pastor Leo as he preaches. Father, bless our communion today. Father, may we proclaim uh, the Lord's death until he comes. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>